Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, it's a genuine delight to have Sahel Khan, who is a C-suite marketing leader, who has driven marketing and customer engagement, customer experience in many of the large tech companies over the last 25, 30 years. Sahel, would you mind doing a quick introduction to who you are and a bit on your background? Marcus, thanks for having me. So my name is Sahil Khan. I've been around for about 20, 30 years, as Marcus stated. I've had the privilege of working with some really interesting tech companies and not tech companies, uh, you know, over the last, across the globe. It has been an absolute incredible journey so far. And I've had the luxury of seeing a lot of changes happen. I've had the joy of working with some really incredible people. And here I am, hopefully providing some interesting uh, opportunities to discuss some matters that are close to all of our hearts. So I know that in the preamble to this, we were talking about a number of issues which are close to both of our hearts. And I'd like to kick off with the killer question. Why is there still a massive disconnect between marketing, sales, customer success, sales enablement? And why does it why do companies and executives allow that to persist? That's a question I've asked myself. And I think that there is no obvious answer, sadly. I think the answer lies in where we choose to fight our battles. And I think in a healthy organization, you should come to an understanding early where those battles lie. They should never be inside your organization. A bit of healthy tension is okay. But beyond that, if you're not able to see a common purpose, that is the foundational pitfall that everybody falls into or falls trapped to. And I think that that is the challenge we need to overcome. The idea that what is our global common strategy? What are we trying to do when we grow up as a company? Mm-hmm. Why does the world care about us? And put that ego aside. Everybody should have a common purpose of saying, we contribute to the, the objective, the vision, the mission that we've laid out for our organization. We also need to pay attention to what the market expects from us as a brand, as a, as a company as a provider of a certain solution, and then be able to say to the people inside the organization, whether it's sales enablement, marketing, sales, support, that there's a level of execution that is expected. It's not about not challenging each other, but I think it's more about challenging a status quo, challenging the execution, and really understanding the intent behind the actions. And as long as we don't answer those questions, that tension will turn into a caustic environment. There's nothing wrong with asking questions. It's not asking the questions and making assumptions that allows that that negative element, that negative thinking, that me versus them mentality to perpetuate. And I think that is what we need to stop. For instance, if sales has a sales quota, which we hope they do, and marketing is supposed to be the enabler of that, then marketing and sales should have an understanding, almost a service level agreement that says, we will provide you with X to sales for marketing, and sales has to have a similar agreement back that says, in a healthy way, we will provide you with a critique of what you gave us so that we can continually make improvements and go after that common goal. And that little bit of sales and service level agreement is oftentimes missing. And that's one of the challenges. So why do they not perceive each other as partners 
and why does this internal? I mean, the market's tough enough as it is, and it you know it always has been. You know, it's a crowded, competitive market pre-COVID. Now it's essential that organisations from sales, marketing, enablement, uh, customer success, <clears throat> customer experience are working in alignment and are fully integrated. Because as far as the customer is concerned, it's all the same thing. It's it's the company and it's the brand. And I, what I'm seeing time and time again is this ludicrous, ego-driven, fiefdom-building and blame, excuses, justification. And it, it just strikes me that what they really need is to have someone with the middle, you know, as Robin Williams said, you know, what they need is someone with the middle name, the, like Johnny the Axe, to come in and act as an adult, to bang their heads together and say, what the hell are you doing? We should be working with common purpose towards yeah. serving the customer. And too often they just, the marketing is bland, it's anodyne, it's self-centered, it doesn't make them differentiate in any way, shape or form. And net result of that is that it makes it really difficult for buyers to decide and select because there's no contrast between one vendor and another. Everyone's doing the voice of the customer bit. They're not focused on uncovering the undiscovered need. And net result of that is that 60% of buying cycles end up in the status quo, in no decision. And that, to me, seems like a monstrous waste of money, waste of opportunity as well. Absolutely. And I think one of the challenges is KPIs. So if you think about a lot of organizations, they set separate KPIs for sales, separate KPIs for marketing, separate KPIs for their customer experience teams. And as long as you keep doing that, the alignment bit, that, that magic that we talk about, will just escape us. It'll just be right there on the periphery. And it won't, it won't be a reality. And, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we don't have common KPIs. So, for example, if a salesperson is rewarded on the actual sale, that's very different than a marketing person being rewarded on return on campaign clicks or the effectiveness of social media adoption of your message and so on. That doesn't necessarily translate into a sale. Neither does the customer experience group asking questions of their, of their customers and, and trying to figure out, are we doing the right thing? And then shelving that information saying, yep, they, they told us we're fine, so we're going to put it away. I think the challenge is, what do you do? How do you enable that information to become a part of your organization's rigor? And that bit needs to be brought in together. And that common linkage between a common purpose, which then leads to what is the vision of your company, and you know, sort of cascading that down back into the organization to say, how do we mobilize to support that vision? And what are the key parts that each one of us plays in enabling the fulfillment of that vision? That part is really critical. Do you mind if I challenge you a bit? Go for it. In this economy, the number one driver has to be to keep your existing customers. Because if you don't, you're going to be in deep shit. And the problem, I think, is that the metrics, the individual metrics, are focused on the wrong end of the problem. I think the one metric that we should be focused on is creating lifetime customers and that volume of repeat business, the expansion potential, 
And that's where we should be. That's our mission. Uh, that's where our focus needs to be. But if people are focused on the quarterly reporting and new business and new logos and all of that kind of stuff, it's all well and good. But that encourages really crappy behavior. For example, going after customers who are non not ideal just to get the revenue in. Now, I remember seeing one deal where it was a 10-year outsourcing deal, and they lost $3 million a year on it for 10 years. Why? Because they were focused on the revenue. The salespeople were encouraged to generate revenue. And without you know, oversimplifying it, people didn't read the contract. And net result of that was they lost $30 million over 10 years. Now, that's a massive um, hole. And I, I see that happen all the time. It's not like it's a unique situation. And you know, if sales is focused on short-term quarterly revenue and marketing is focused on click-throughs, there's one fundamentally important piece which is missing, which is the customer. Why the hell isn't there more emphasis on the customer? Well, I think, so first of all, I hate to disappoint you, but I am in agreement with you on this. Uh, <laughs> so there goes that challenge. It's not relief. <laughs> uh, I think you're right. But a lot of it comes down to how the organization's set up as well. How do people get compensated? That's a really key element in all of this. So the other part is, it is important to retain your customers. And I think, I think understanding your share of wallet, first of all, understanding the size of wallet when it comes to your customer, and understanding what percentage of that wallet you own today and how you can grow it is really vital. That is exactly why customer experience you know, and customer loyalty of the old days are, are important concepts. You can't just continue to go out and drill up new, you know, new business. Because first of all, you know, the old idea of it takes a lot more to get a new customer than it does to retain a customer, that, that all thinking is true. It's still true. And you, you simply cannot dismiss that. And I think the second part of that in that equation is the only reason a customer will stay with you is that if they think they're getting good value for the money, your service and products are actually performing and you care about them. If those things don't become completely transparently visible to them, someone else will make it visible to them from their end. And that's how customers get poached away. That's how competitors step in. I think that's why customer experience programs need to behave with a, with a clear understanding and commitment around acting on the data they get back from the customers. You know, the idea of a closed loop. If a customer says to you, you know, these are the reasons why I stay with you or I, and, and, you know, I'm unhappy, you don't just say, yep, thank you very much. And you, you know, go, okay, we'll ask them again in three months. Well, guess what? Nothing will change if you don't do something about it. And I think that keeping that engagement, keeping that customer insight and behaving in a way such that they can see that you know, incremental improvement in how you manage that relationship is really vital in order for them to continue to put their trust in you and continue to open that stream. And you're right, in today's market, losing a customer is far more detrimental than losing a bid on a new customer. Because that, that part of the revenue was never accounted for, but the bond you lost was completely accounted for, and it was part of your books. And if you lose that, then you're creating a hole that you need to not only fill with one new customer to replace that, but several others, so that your net value in the end catches up. The research, uh, there's a company called Corporate Visions that's done some fantastic research in partnership with Stanford University. And the, what you're alluding to there is a really serious dereliction of duty, both on behalf of sales and marketing and the customer experience people. Because um, 60% of pursuits 
end up staying with the incumbent. You already have the advantage. And if you are not reinforcing the why stay message and you're not capitalizing on your position as the incumbent, then shame on you. Because if you leave the door open for the 40% to go somewhere else, that is because of lack of attention. And it's absolutely on the, uh, the vendor um, yeah. why that happened. And there's no excuse for it other than shoddy account care and poor internal communication. Let me ask you this. Why is it marketing doesn't spend more time talking to customers? Well, good marketing does, right? But that's the exception. And the challenge for that is there is a question that doesn't get answered, which is why in the first place did we decide to invest in marketing? Marketing's not cheap. You and I talked about this in our preamble. Marketing is not cheap. It is an expensive endeavor. Done right, it yields huge benefits. But the challenge lies in the, 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 the fundamental question of, are we doing marketing because everybody else is doing marketing? Or are we actually doing marketing because we think it will enable the growth of our business? If the answer is that it will enable the growth of our business, then you're on the right path. But nine out of 10 times, I've noticed, I've stepped into organizations and I've been completely blown away with this lack of planning, lack of really cohesive understanding of the purpose of marketing other than running lead generation campaigns, which fall short nine out of 10 times, if not all the time, because there is no purpose or intent behind it. It's just a reactive mechanical process you've put in place because sales said, we need 20 leads. Marketing says, fine, we'll send out e-shots and we'll do social campaigns. And you know we're about to give you 20 leads at least. And guess what? Sales turns around and says, those were crap. They were absolutely useless. And you, you know, you're sitting as a marketing person going, yeah, but you asked me for 20 leads. You didn't say what kind, right? I mean, I gave you 30. I'm good. And so that breakdown in relationship and, and common purpose and any element of success is just thrown out the window repeatedly. There's a company that I partner with called Gap in the Matrix. They're a mathematical psycholo- uh, psychology business. and They've identified that $265 billion a year is spent on advertising on Facebook, on Google, and other platforms that generates zero interaction. Just on Facebook alone, that's 1.73 trillion impressions that get no interaction. I was speaking to Mark Schaefer, and he had a lovely observation, which is the evidence is there, but the results are not. Given that there is so much evidence that most marketing is utterly fruitless and a waste of money, is there not a huge argument for senior executives to look at their entire sales operation and take advantage of the pandemic and say, okay, let's take a blank sheet of paper and redesign our marketing, our sales, our customer onboarding, our customer success, our customer experience, and our account management process and restructure it from grassroots up and focus on the bits that work, eliminate the bits that don't, and reinvest all of that time, that money, that resource in making sure it does work. In an ideal world, yes. But how often do you think people actually pay attention to that part where they're being diagnostic enough to say, 
yes, this is working. No, that's not working. In a few organizations that I had entered and worked in, the common theme was there was no marketing planning, but yet they had a marketing budget. Help me understand how that's allowed, right? So I was the unpopular guy walking in and saying, you asked for money, what do you plan to do with it? Oh, we're going to do what we did last year. And how did that work out? And the question and the challenge and the ability to push back and recognize that you might not get a marketing budget, you should be acceptable. Because at the end of the day, if you're not delivering results, you shouldn't be doing the activity that you've been spending money on because you're taking away from the margins in a company by asking for that budget and not delivering. I, one of the companies I was at recently, I instituted a, a, a quarterly and then a mid-year review of what we said we'd, plan, we'd do when we asked the board for the money. And then how far along were we on that journey and delivering that? And oh, by the way, it shouldn't be our view of whether we delivered or not. It should be a view of the groups we support, so sales, product, et cetera, in an honest discussion, telling us whether or not we were actually delivering to what we agreed that we would deliver. And if not, then we needed to make those fine-tuning changes during the flight so that we could deliver and come back and be on track in alignment with the organizations we had promised to support. That takes a lot of effort. That takes turning everything on its head and being okay with that. The, the quarterly revenues, the the challenge of you know this ready fire aim mentality doesn't allow that, and that is there lies the challenge for everybody. So yes, it would be lovely if we as a C, if, if if I were a CEO and if I could say to my organization, take a step back. This is a moment that allows us to actually redesign. And by the way, I'm not saying I'm cutting anybody's budget just yet. What I'm saying to you is, justify what you want to do in line with what we want to achieve and what our customers and market expect from us as a brand and then as a company. If I could do that, I'd do it in a heartbeat. But I think the challenge will still be that idea of we need to continue to deliver shareholder value. We need to continue to deliver quarterly revenue numbers. We need to continue to deliver uh, against the sales quotas. And that is the, the, the tension we need to find a balance with. If you want better answers, you have to ask better questions. And I think that the evidence is in the small data, not the big data. If we look at the actual conversion rate from pursuit to closed deal, the research on this, again, out of Stanford, is very clear. The average organization selling to enterprise closes one in 38.5 of the pursuits they chase. Now. Anyone, if they were looking at the right bits of data, looking at the top of the funnel, not translating into results at the bottom of the funnel, has to have that evidence in their CRM. And then that has to beg the question, well, hang on, shareholders, hang on, investors. Why are you pushing us to do inefficient, ineffective activity when in fact what you really want is to take a step back and maybe take a hit for a quarter or two on the share price, but recognize that if we do this, we will be in a stronger position so we can focus on our ideal customer, on understanding what it is that they will pay for and why they will stay loyal to us. And then whilst they're loyal, continue to spend and increase our share of wallet. It just strikes me that what it actually requires is courage and vulnerability for the leadership to ask those questions and then go and have some difficult conversations 
with the evidence in front of them. Um, because the amount of money, I mean, if you're, following, if you're pursuing an enterprise pursuit, that could easily cost you 40 grand, whether you win or lose. Yeah. And if you get all the way through to final stage and you're one of the four or five in the final bun fight, that could easily have cost you six, seven, eight figures. So there is no economy in carrying on doing what they're doing. It's a straw man. And the problem I see there is that it takes guts to have that conversation. Absolutely. And I think, I think as much as the world believes or likes to believe that they are data-driven, they're still not. And I think the more we become data-driven, the more we'll get to that place, the place where we can actually make sound, intelligent, and data-driven decisions. Not to speak politics, but if you think about when Barack Obama won his first election, it was driven through analytics. It was driven through a focus on states that he needed to win, and that's where he campaigned. He didn't peanut butter campaign around all 50 states. He didn't try to do you know, what the conventional way of, of, of campaigning was. You get on a bus and you hit every state and you kiss every baby. But he went out and his campaign leaders basically said, okay, data tells us that these are the states. If you win these states, you win the election. And he did, right? But that was a leap of faith because he could have easily said, no, 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 no. But, but conventional wisdom states that I need to go out and do this. Otherwise, what if? And that's the kind of thinking we need to bring in to the leaders to say, trust the information, trust the data, trust the uh, execution once the data is, the information to the data is realized and, and, and processed. And I think that, that that's a scary thing for a lot of leaders. And a lot of leaders who've come through over the last decade and a half, and they've sort of seen how much part, you know, intelligence and AI and data and analytics have played and how much control they may have to give up. That's scary. And I think that but that's required now. I think we're at a place where, you know, if you start to look at, you know, and this is something I used to talk about, and I still you know, try to hammer the point, you know, there are three parts of your decision cycle. You have to look at the market, you have to look at your customers, and you have to look at your competitors. If you can triangulate that and then decide, and then you know, map over your strategy on top of that and do a gap analysis, that's a pretty darn good picture for you as far as where you need to be. And you can take that to every part of your organization, whether it's sales, marketing, product, support, you know, the board. And they should be able to, I say should, be able to see that and allow you to execute on it. That's a little bit of uphill, but... Again, taking your analogy further, in the 2016 election, Jordan Peterson was saying that Trump didn't win it, Clinton lost it for exactly the opposite reasons that Barack Obama won, because she didn't pay attention to the states she, she needed to win, and she wasn't paying attention to the data. And it does take guts to challenge the leaders. Um, and this is where the people who are at the sharp end, I think, need to also grow a pair. Because if you look at what happened to Nokia, Nokia's middle management was screaming from the rooftops, we need to do something about this, uh, these smartphones. And in fact, they invented the smartphone. But middle uh, senior management uh, was fat, dumb, and happy because they've all, you know, what made them successful, they thought would carry on making them successful. And I think you've touched on something here as well, which is going to be very interesting. I'm curious to see how things play out because as large organizations hang on to what made them successful and new 
entrants or fast-scale organizations start coming up and challenging their position, they are fleeter of foot and they're more willing to take those risks and make those tough decisions. And they're in a better position to be able to pivot. So I, I suspect over the next four or five years, we're going to see a lot of very large organizations go to the wall and a whole bunch of new companies that you probably never heard of coming to the fore. What are your thoughts? I totally agree. And I've seen it happen before. A few years back when I was working with a large conglomerate, we saw a competitor come in and they didn't really offer what we had in market. They offered maintenance part of the business for whatever we had in market. We never saw them coming. We were focused on the big competitors. We were focused on looking at where we were. And that was the first time I, you know, I, I had to pay attention to the idea of horizon scanning and looking at the periphery. Because you get into a comfort zone. You get into, you know, this is how business is done in our industry, in our market, in our, in our geography. And guess what? Everybody else is watching that too. And there are plenty of very agile startups, well-invested. You know, small organizations who can come in and be not so small very quickly because you're sleeping at the wheel and you're sort of comfortable. You can remain comfortable because com- comfort is something, it's not a luxury that's allowed. You know, and I think about organizations and I always think about what ways can we get an organization set up so they can succeed? And I always th- break it down into three things that I read about one time, a long time ago in my early days of marketing. And one was around focus, you know, creating a common focus that everybody can get behind and providing a level of, you know, taking it to the next level of providing a level of clarity around it. So if this is what we're trying to achieve, how do we achieve it? What do we need to do? You know, what is clear path for each of your contributions that needs to be done? And then having that alignment that says no one part of the company can do this alone. To your point at the beginning, from the beginning of the conversation around sales and, and marketing linkage and that, that constant butting of the heads how do we get around that? If you have a common alignment and you have a common focus and there's clarity on how you need to achieve that, I think you can get there. And I think that that's something you need to do almost on a daily basis to say, are we still on track? Are we still clear on what we're trying to do? Are we still focused? And are we working together? You know, the idea of proper onboarding. If you came into a new company and they gave you all that and they connected you and you could see all the dots, you know, coming together, and the and, and all the lines going, you know, in a way such that they were giving you a clear pathway as far as you know how do we interact, who do we connect with, how do we align, how do we understand my contribution does toward achieving our our common purpose. Would that be a beautiful world? But some days I sit there and I think to myself, oh gosh, is it like you know, world peace? Are we ever going to get there? But then the hopeful side of me says, oh, absolutely, yeah. There's a very useful book called The Context Marketing Revolution by Matthew Sweezy, who is the chief futurist for Salesforce. And he maps this out in um, step-by-step detail. Um, if, if you are in marketing and you haven't read that and you're not applying those principles, you are in grave danger of making yourself irrelevant yep. and making your business irrelevant. And all chief executives need to be reading about that too. And you, you, um, one of my favorite marketing books is, uh, it's, I'm pretty sure it's out of print now. It's called Marketing Warfare by Jack Trout and Al Reese. And what you talked about there was 
organizations that operate at what they call the flanking strategy. So the number one in the market, their objective is to defend against all comers. The number two's objective is to have an offensive strategy, trying to take market share from number one. Numbers three and four typically will operate a flanking strategy, where in the 80s and 90s, it was companies like Sun and Tandem. IBM never saw Sun coming. And they created uh, those MIDI computers, and all of a sudden, they exploded onto the scene. They created Java, packet data, and all sorts of other stuff. And Tandem created parallel processing, which, again, took a large chunk of that financial services business away from the big boys. And in the, the last decade, we've seen the rise up of Uber and Airbnb. Marriott and Hilton had no idea that someone's back bedroom would be their biggest competition. All of a sudden, these businesses have come out of nowhere. And the whole issue around that horizon scanning, you've got to be really savvy. If you're a, if you're a market leader, you need to have the willingness to kill your babies. And, and it requires real leadership um, to be able to do that. But again, most of them will play it safe. And I think in this market, playing it safe is the most dangerous strategy you can possibly have. It's like, um, you know, I was listening to Ray Dalio at the weekend, and he say, he's saying very clearly, cash is the worst place you can keep your money. Because chances are, there's going to be massive inflationary pressure because governments have got nowhere to go with interest rates. So now they're going to be printing money. And you're looking at it, there's a $750 billion stimulus package, a get second one, coming out of the EU. Our government's doing the same. In the States, they're going to be doing something similar. At the same time, they're removing all the protections for consumers around evictions and banks gouging them on interest rates and everything else. And all these things are coalescing at once. So there's a very real possibility. I mean, Dalio is saying that we're going to lose a decade on the stock market. And there's a forecast of 40% drop in stocks and shares. Now, if you are not ready for that, you're going to be in a really bad place. Tell me this, in terms of the conversations that need to be happening at board level around marketing, because I, I see marketing as anything that touches the customer. Who should really be driving that? Is it marketing or is it more the customer success, customer experience people? And should they have a bigger voice at the table? That's an interesting shift that's happening today. A lot of companies are getting rid of a chief marketing officer and putting in a chief customer officer, a chief data officer, etc. Bottom line is this. Whoever holds the sort of the mantle of driving the company's presence into the market, whether it's people responsible for managing the touch points, whether it's people responsible for storytelling, whether it's people responsible for getting that differentiated position in the market delivered. It doesn't matter. I think what really matters is that that dialogue actually happens. The thinking that I would like to push and see a little bit more happen at the board level is this concept of playing to win versus playing to not lose. And they're wildly different. And a lot of companies, to your point, will simply say, look, as long as we're okay, we're not, you know, we're not losing, we're good. And the little guys who come around the bend, all they care about is putting everything on the table and saying it's sink or swim. We're gonna put, you know, all the wood behind this arrow and we'll fire it. And 
we'll see what happens. That thinking is that disruptive element that really creates a lot of pain for the traditional companies out there. And whoever is sitting at the board level, whether it's the CMO, whether it's the CCO, et cetera, they need to be brave enough and bold enough to put some skin in the game. The idea that Warren Buffett came up with many, many years ago, right? That you've got to put your own skin in the game. I think there's a level of there's a level of nervousness that, you know, what if the board disagrees and what if they think that, you know, I'm a risk taker? What if I'm out? So what? You're gonna be out either way if the company doesn't do well, right? You might as well make, you know, make a go of it and be bold, be brave, and be the person who says to the board, look, to achieve what you've never achieved, you've got to do what something you've never done. And let's go. I think that regardless of who's delivering that message, that message needs to be delivered. And I do believe that a lot of times marketing is not given that space at the board level simply because, oh, they're the fluffy guys in the back. You know, they make nice ads and, you know, they send out emails and they're on social media. What do they know about marketing? What do they know about strategy, I should say? What do they know about growth? And I think you're probably right. What do they know about marketing? It might be more appetizing. <laughs> Because again, they're missing the trick. You know, Warren Buffett said, there's a lovely quote from him, which is when the tide goes out, you get to see who's been swimming naked. And there are an awful lot of bare bums out there that are just waiting to be whipped. If they are not adapting, then they're going to be in so much trouble. And yeah. it's only a matter of time before it comes back to bite them. Because that whole piece, now is not the time to be cautious. And the CFO driving that message of efficiency over resilience, mm. I think, is hugely detrimental because what they're doing is they're cutting everything to the bone. They're not making judicious cuts. Where they should be doubling down is in effective marketing. Now, I'm not saying that most marketing isn't utterly pointless, but the, and it, it is, but it really needs to be focused on the right end of the problem. They need to be focused on creating lifetime customers. And that's where the emphasis needs to be. So they need to be looking at who is the ideal customer and working on attracting and then keeping them and looking at the lifetime value of a customer. Because I think that's a much more effective metric to be measuring rather than revenues. And there needs to be an emphasis also on customer satisfaction. In fact, customer delight. Mm-hmm. That whole piece about the CEO speaking to the customer, marketing speaking to the customer, everybody in sales being accountable to the customer. And that seems to be desperately missing because so many people are worried that they're going to get found out and people are going to see that they haven't been in their bathing suit. What's your parting advice to senior to the C-suite when they're looking at their marketing and looking at where they need to invest? I think one of the questions that, or one of the points you touched on with regards to the CFO's role is really important. And I think if I were asked, and you did ask me, so I'll I'll answer it. There are a couple of things. One, voice of the customer is really critical. And I think this idea of having promoters, you know, we've talked about NPS and voice of the customer, leveraging that and bringing that into the mix creates a much better marketing than just look at us, how great are we? Are we the best? If you remember in the 90s and early 2000s, there two auto rental companies, Hertz and Avis, went head to head about, and they used customer experience as a differentiator. And Avis came out and said, "We're number one." And and everybody sort of looked at them and said, "Well, great for you, you know." 
Hertz was number one. Yeah, they said we're number one, and Avis came back and said you're number one to the customer. And the differentiating element in that was massive. And I think if I were talking to the board, to the C-suite, I would say this. Don't do marketing if you're doing it simply because everyone else says. Your brand doesn't mean anything unless there's a purpose behind it. And ask yourself two questions. One, why would you put money behind it? Is it because the common theme in the world is, yeah, we ought to have a marketing director or a CMO because everybody else, our competition does. So yeah, it's good to have that. Or is it to answer the question that if you disappeared off the map tomorrow as a brand, would you be missed? And who would miss you? Would it be your competitors? Because they're going, yeah, good riddance. Thank goodness now the path is open. That would be a good position to be in. Equally, if your customers missed you because you delighted them, because you gave them that much and more that no one else could, that's where you need to be. And to get to that place, you need to have a plan that's just absolutely driven around creating the right impression, whether it's through sales, whether it's through marketing, whether it's through your product, whether it's through your executive touching customers on a regular basis. I'll leave you with a quick anecdote. Many, many years ago, I ran a customer experience program for a large organization, and they would ask me to go in and meet with our sales organization when they did global account planning sessions. And one of the things we talked about was always around what type of customer experience are we creating? So I remember this sales rep who ran a large global account came in and said, customer experience is doing well, and I have the account well penetrated. And I looked at the data and I said, you know, we asked 25 people to, to answer the survey and two people did. That's not really showing strength in relationship. How many people are in the organization? He said 240,000. And I said, okay, all right. How many people are, let's just drop it down. By, so, so the executives are what, 2,000, 2,500? You know, and he said, oh, no, 25,000 are executives and leaders in the business. I said, all right. How many of those people do you interact with? And he said, oh, at least 250. I said, that's great. And do they know you? And his response was, well, that's not a fair question. I said, well, if you, if you send out messages and you think that's interacting with them, that's really not interacting with them. That's just you, a very one-sided, you bombarding them with stuff. But if they actually know you and they care about the, you know, what you do for them and the relationship you have with them, all you have to do is send them a message that says, we care, we, know, we need to know how you're doing and how we're performing to, against your needs, and they'll respond to it. And he said, oh, that's interesting. I think I have my work cut out for me. And the idea was that you know, relationships are actually a two-way street. It's not just, I have a Rolodex, I'll fire off messages and, hey, guess what? Those people all are my friends. It's not just being the drunk guy on the corner yelling at passers-by. I'd like to build on that point. Obviously, voice of the customer has become very fashionable. One of the challenges with relying too heavily on just the voice of the customer is if all of you are doing it, then you're probably all coming back with the same kind of stuff. And that then creates more difficulties to compare between the two vendors. And so uh, what that does is it increases cost and complexity in the prospect's mind. I think the real place that that conversation needs to go is in the arena of unconsidered needs. That's where people will shift their royalty. And if you are the incumbent you need to do that in the course of a contract. Never do that. Never raise those unconsidered needs at the point of renewal. 
The research from Stanford and corporate visions is that that will increase the probability of it going to a bid situation and you losing that account by 10%. That needs to be done in the lifetime of your contract with them. And it needs to be an ongoing thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and many, many years ago, when I was in telecom, one of the common re- ways in which we won business was because we would go after our competitors' accounts and we would highlight the areas where they were not taking care of them. And then, of course, that competitor would come, turn around. In that case, it was AT&T. They would turn around and they would say, oh, yeah, but we can do that for you. That's a little too late. Mm. If somebody, if your competition has come and highlighted you know, where all the pain points are that you haven't taken care of, you're saying that you can take care of it. Uh, it doesn't matter. And similarly, I mean, today I'm a Sky customer, right? I've been with them for seven, eight years. I never get the same good deals that a new customer is offered, mm-hmm. even though every month without fail, I pay them. And I continue to foolishly renew my contract with them every two years. And at some point, I need to wake up and kick myself in the head and go, what are you doing? Because they're not taking care of you. They've given up on you. They only care about the new guys. We, right? we did exactly that. And we got a 70% reduction. So tell them you're going to leave. And then they'll come back with a, a much better deal. And we ended up getting a 70% reduction. Well, my wife did, because she's much better at that stuff than I am, because I can't be bothered. I'm the classic apathetic buyer. Okay, so Heather, this has been really very interesting. T- tell me something. What are you struggling with at the moment? What are you wrestling with in the context of all that we've discussed? And one of the things that is top of mind for me right now is that panic that everybody's going through at the moment about how much of the stuff we've done in the past should we carry forward as far as planning and strategizing and how much of it should we just completely throw away. And there's this common misconception that strategic planning is not something we are, we should be focused on or we have the license and the, and the, um, the runway to continue with. And I think that that's a really scary thing People are, people are saying, well, post-COVID, the new normal should be completely different. Well, yes, it should be completely different, but there has to be a level of continuity that gives comfort to those who are saying, will some of this still continue in a way that I'm familiar with? And I think finding that balance between this idea that between chaos and planning, that balance between the two is really important. I don't think we can completely throw away everything that's tried and trusted, but equally, I don't think we could sit comfortably and say, it's worked before it worked again. And somewhere between those two is where we need to find that balance that says, we have to allow people to be carried to the new normal, whatever that new normal will be. And if we don't create that bridge for them, and if we simply break the, the, the ties with everything that was six months ago, it's not that long ago, right? Six months ago to creating something completely net new, the amount of change people are going through already is huge. If you continue to pile on to that, you'll end up in a very fractured environment. So that's really something that's really top of mind for me. How do we create that bridge between what was six months ago considered to be the absolute normal with all its frustrations and all its challenges and all its opportunities to this post, and we're not post yet, right? We're still in COVID. So when people say post COVID, I don't know what post-COVID will look like because we haven't arrived there. We have at least another year, if not more. Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is a very fluid environment. And I think what we need to do is let's not make bold, almost irrational statements that this must change and that must change. Let's keep taking stock for a little bit and keep making incremental changes that benefit the most 
widest landscape around us. If we can do that, if you allow yourself sort of that, that, that little bit of grace to say, yep, we, we may make mistakes, but we have room to, to fix them. But if you're, you know, if you're very black and white, I worry that you may come into a new environment where things are so dramatically different that one, it, it'll, be, it'll be a hard process for people to digest and understand them. On the other hand, the need for results will continue to put pressure. What I'm seeing is an awful lot of reflexive behavior because of recency. So the pandemic is, and the lockdown, and all the knock-on effect of that is still very fresh in people's minds. And their instinctive reaction is batten down the hatches, cut, 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 because that's what we've always done in the past. And I, I think this is an opportunity to go and speak to your customers and partner with them and look at, okay, which of your customers would be critical to you if they left you or they went to the wall? How can we serve you to serve them better? How can we serve you in order to keep your most important suppliers uh, alive and well? What's your uh, ongoing strategy? And how do we restructure what we look like in order to take uh, help you achieve your objectives? What are the unintended consequences of, you know, you, we look at virtualization and we look at people, you know, doing this work from home, Mark. It's great to an extent. How is it going to affect teams and culture? How is it going to affect collaboration? How is it going to affect people when they're working from home now have to put up with their toddlers coming in and disturbing them and um, you know the the pressure that they're feeling what about the isolation that people feel you know a lot of organizations i don't think are really thinking stuff through and we need to be partnering with them and thinking about okay what does the landscape look like what are the possibilities how do we plan for those what can we do in order to make sure that we can still provide our services that are relevant and what do we need to do to adapt but that requires people to get out there and have conversations with customers instead yeah. of burying their head in the sand. And it needs to happen at executive level because that, you know, I'm working with one MSP where the CEO is doing that. And the quality of information that she's getting that the salespeople had no idea about is amazing. And, you know, they didn't realize just how much their customers love them, but they didn't, you know, the customers had no idea just how flexible these people could be and what else they could do. So it's opening up opportunities. It's crazy that this hasn't happened for 17 years under the previous leadership. This should have been happening all the time. I remember hearing customers say they were at the sort of at the precipice of leaving and our sales team would go in and say, why are you leaving? And they'd say, well, we wanted these three things in addition to what you do for us. And we'd say, yeah, but we do those. And the customer would scratch their head and say, well, we didn't know you did that. You know, that level of engagement and being able to allow the customer or give the customer that information in advance about all that you offer is really vital. I think you touched on something here, which is, which is really important. I think we have an opportunity to take a look at our organizational design. Right? Last year, Davos talked about, at Davos, they talked about the idea of purpose before profits. And if that discussion was happening way years, almost a year ago prior to the pandemic, I think that frame of mind 
that seed has already been planted, that frame of mind already exists. And I think we need to take advantage of that. We need to be able to say, okay, this is our opportunity to talk about the culture upon which we, you know, rested everything, all of our values and everything. And when we hired people, we, you know, we used to ask ourselves, is that person a cultural fit? Now that it's virtual, to your point, you know, everybody's sitting out in their own homes or in their garden and having, you know, these Zoom calls or what have you, that culture still needs to come through somehow. And that organizational design has to be able to show those values in that new normal. And I think that that is a really important thing. And I believe sometimes that's missing, even as part of the planning stages for what, when we think about what post-pandemic corporate world and corporate culture would look like. And it's really important for us to not lose sight of that. Agreed. Okay. Um, Sahel, tell me, what are you reading, watching, listening to that's influencing your thinking at the moment? So interestingly, I'm actually rereading something at the moment. It's a book called Contagion. Contagious, sorry. It's all the, around the idea of, you know, how ideas take flight. And it's interesting, well, not because the title is contagious, but more importantly, how do we continue to refresh the idea of, of coming up with ways in which we keep our message relevant? And that, it's a good reminder. The other thing I'm doing a lot of is um, actually listening to podcasts, uh, listening to the political rhetoric that's happening around the world, just to get a sense of you know where will we end up uh, in some of the larger economies in the world and what part they'll play in the recovery stage of this post-pandemic world that we'll hopefully arrive in sooner than later. I'm enjoying Colin Shaw's podcast. Also, there's a new one, uh, Not the New Normal, by Alex Moscow, which is very interesting. And uh, that looking at it from a communication and storytelling perspective, that's really worth a listen as well. Yeah, I also listen to Salesforce when they come on in the afternoon. It's interesting to see you know, what their take is, what their position is. And, and, and definitely Colin Shaw has been really fun to listen to, especially because I followed him for a while on all this work on customers and, and the insight-based you know, advice he's given. So it's been fun. Well, I, I just released a podcast with him yesterday. So that's a, a really interesting lesson. Okay, so you've got a golden ticket. You can whisper in the idiot Sahel's ear, age 23. What choice bit of advice would you whisper in his ear? And it can be just carry on, you know, make the mistakes, but I'd love to hear what advice you'd give him. Gosh, there are a couple of things that I would say to the idiot Sahel from when he was 23. One would be, don't be an idiot. No, but that withstanding, be bold and decisive when you go after something. And then the other one is, don't assume that everyone you work with, that you talk to, understands what you're saying or are on the same page as you. Bring them along. Help them understand. Give them the information so they can have the, uh, the, the choice, or the, not the choice, but the opportunity to be at the same stage or thinking or understanding of what you're trying to say to them or what you're trying to accomplish. And that's been a, a, a big learning for me. I walk in, in my early days, I used to walk in and, and assume that everybody was on the same page because I had sent out an email. Mm. Well, most <laughs> <laughs> uh, people hadn't even read the email, let alone, you know, pay attention to the fact that I was saying something. And 
the more I engaged with those stakeholders on a one-on-one basis and talked to them and helped them understand and got their understanding back of you know where we were in the journey, the better it was when we got together as a team to figure out what we wanted to do and how we wanted to execute. So that would certainly be something. So that then raises a really interesting question because I'm a huge fan of coaching. Um, should the CMO get engaged in coaching the sales teams? Yes, because the CMO, if the CMO is doing it right, is creating the message that the sales team carries out to the world. In the perfect world, that's how it should be. The storytelling and then convert it into an elevator pitch or whatever you're going to call that, you know, a bite-sized message. If that's being done in the right way, then, then yes, definitely coaching should be done by the CMO as one of the coaches and not the only coach. And the other part of it is, you know, that goes hand in hand. Now you've brought up another idea, hand in hand with should the CMO sit through a win-loss analysis? Yeah. Right? A lot of times that doesn't happen. A lot of times companies don't even do win-loss analysis, let alone bring in a CMO or a marketing representative for that matter. And that should be always part of that. And that's a perfectly calibrated team that's in sync because not only are you looking at why you lost, it could be product, it could be how the message was delivered, it could be you know, the competition offered better price, it could be a number of reasons, right? But being able to take that information, work with it, has the potential of, of overcoming that type of a loss in the future. And it could be, gosh, we didn't deliver the message right. Well, let's go work on that message. Again, many years ago, one of the things we did as a company was as part of sales training, we asked our sales teams and sales managers and, and senior reps to be the, the leading examples of how the solution message was delivered to the market. And you had to pass that presentation in order for you to stay with the business. And we ended up firing about two or three people in the end, but because they refused to, to think they were too good, they refused to think that you know it was important enough. The others had to deliver that message. They had to create their own message the first time, and then they were given a message in a, in a, in a streetwise version that was created by marketing. Not the, not the corporate slide deck, but a more, you know, what would the client want to hear? And how, you know, if I were a client, if you came to me and said, we operate in 35 countries, we do this, we do this, I don't care. But if you came to me and said, here's what we can do for you because this is the industry you're in and these are the things you're, you're, you're struggling with and, and you know, here's how we partner with you for future growth, etc." that becomes a far more compelling discussion. Anyway, long and short of it, that's the level of engagement you should have as far as coaching, mentoring, and enabling You've raised a really <laughs> naughty thought in my mind, which is uh, Sam Walton, the founder of Walmart. If you as a manager in a store hired somebody and they left within six months of hiring them, you had to fly out to their headquarters to explain why. A radical thought is that uh, if you lose an account, the account team should have to explain to the chief executive why. I suspect that would focus their attention on the right end of the problem. But uh, I'm looking forward to some hate mail. So, <laughs> um, Sahel, thank you so much. This has been really, really interesting. How can people get hold of you? Simply send me a message through LinkedIn. That's the easiest thing to do. 
I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter. I'd be happy to engage in any future discussions. What's your Twitter handle? It's simply Sohail underscore K. Excellent. Sohail Khan, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Marcus. Thank you. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with me, either to give me hell for my ideas about radically reshaping your sales operation or flying your sales account team in the event of a loss over to explain to the board, then please get in touch at marcuscauke at me.com or m-c-a-u-c-h-i at sandler.com. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please put us in touch either via email or on LinkedIn. In the meantime, this is Marcus Kauke signing off. Happy selling and stay safe. Bye-bye.